Soldiers wearing gas masks. Dozens of red flags puncturing a stormy skyline. Elegant women seated around a card table. Men encircling the bright face of Vladimir Lenin. Workers sitting on a cannon eating their packed lunches. A gloved man at the center adjusting four propellers containing the universe. These are just a few details that pop out at me when I look at Diego Rivera's mural, Controller of the Universe. I'm Maria Trujillo, and this is Vida y Arte, the podcast that brings art of the Americas to the forefront and shows you why it matters now. For this episode, we'll explore how the mural traditions continue today with Jules Mendoza and Jessica Sabogal, both Latino artists with practices that work to uplift their communities and amplify their voices. Controller of the Universe, the artwork originally commissioned in 1933 for Rockefeller Plaza, was destroyed only a few months into the project because the message was labeled as anti-capitalist propaganda. That same year, Rivera convinced the Mexican government to allow him to paint the mural at the Palacio de Bellas Artes in Mexico City. Rivera, considered very much as a godfather of muralism in Latin America, created an image that was too political for New York sensibilities, or was it that it was too powerful? Now, visitors can experience the pivotal mural reproduced at the Denver Art Museum. The exhibition, Frida Kahlo, Diego Rivera, and Mexican Modernism from the Jacques and Natasha Gelman collection brings together the sounds, the smells, and the imagery of Mexicanidad, Mexican identity, of the early 20th century for visitors to enjoy. The murals created by Rivera continue to inspire generations of mural artists perhaps no more deeply felt than with Latinos across the world. Today, murals still carry enormous power. Artists can deliver a public and pointed message for and to communities championing their causes and struggles. Thank you, Jessica and Jules, for joining me today. So I'd love to get started in talking to you guys about how murals still carry this power. Could you each talk to me a little bit about how you started painting murals and how your practice has evolved since then? Sure. Thank you so much for having me here today. It was my very first podcast, so I'm pretty excited about that. Basically, being the daughter of two Colombian immigrants, I was tasked with either becoming a daughter or a lawyer. I was the only person to be born in America. And so I felt like I very much had this pressure of like um, my parents' American dream, you know, just being like financially stable, probably like marrying a white guy, you know, white picket fence, all that stuff. I went to UCSD. I came in pre-med wanting to be a doctor. And then during that time, I started to become politicized. I started to learn about different conflicts in the world, the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. Also being right by the Tijuana-San Diego border, I started to pick up on a lot of the politics that were happening there. And that's when I thought, you know, somebody kind of with all of my identities, being a woman, being gay, being a daughter of two immigrants, living in the Bay Area, I thought the world is going to be different for somebody that looks and talks like me than, you know, for the person next to me. So that's when I changed my major to political science. And then as soon as I graduated, you know, it was 2009, it was a big recession, and nobody was really hiring new college grads that graduated with liberal arts degrees. And that's when I really took to art somehow. YouTube was like barely a thing back then. So we really had just like internet searches and books. But I remember seeing Shepard Fairey and Banksy for the first time on my weird little like street art internet searches. Mm -hmm. And I remember that they were able to put very political 
images in the streets that were really simple, like one or two color stencils kind of things. Mm. So I remember going to Home Depot and buying three cans of spray paint, and I just created like my first stencil that was like really ugly and made no sense and like (laughs) had no message really, you know, um, that I sprayed that thing for like a year, you know, just over and over and over again, just so excited that I could participate and kind of like express myself. And that was 11 years ago. And then over time, I started kind of refining the process. Okay, from like one color, two colors, four colors, five colors. Then, you know, how do I make portraits more photorealistic? How do I bring in texture? How do I bring in patterns? And then once I got the methodologies right at a place where I was okay with them, I was really lacking the kind of social practice aspect of my work. I was just kind of painting by myself in the bottom of my girlfriend's basement at the time. I, you know, was very lonely. And so I remember my parents were traveling back to Bogota and I thought, what better place to begin this journey of maybe putting my work in the street than, you know, back in my parents' hometown. But I remember I tried kind of that technique and it worked. And I, for the first time, I was able to bring something that I designed that was like two inches by two inches in a drawing to, you know, 80 feet wide by, you know, nine feet tall. And so as soon as I was able to finish that and do it correctly, then I thought, okay, I can do this anywhere, you know. And then lately, I feel like since the methodology is kind of down packed, it's been all about the message, you know. So now I'm all about like, okay, how do we disrupt what's going on in the neighborhood? How do we add to what's going Mm -hmm. on in the neighborhood? How do we kind of document what's going on in the neighborhood? And yeah, that's like kind of where I'm at today. So it also sounds like you had to learn a lot of this on your own, right? Like these building Um, skills. Yeah, I felt like just very kind of lonely. Nobody was there to say, you know, this is how you hold a spray can. This is the cap you use to get this kind of line. This is how you smooth talk your way into getting a wall, you know, permission for a wall kind of thing. Like everything was kind of trying it for the first time, you know. And how about you, Jules? First of all, well, Thank you for having me here. My name is Julio Mendoza, or Jules, and I'm a Latino muralist from, from Denver. I was actually born in El Paso, Texas, but I, I lived in Juarez. I was raised in Juarez until I was 11 years old. But we would go to El Paso a lot because we were, like, so close to it. I can relate a lot to Jessica, too, because, like I said, being Latino, too, so me, it was, a, like, a little pressure of me also, like, making your parents proud. And I can relate to something that Jessica said about going to college and ending up with a major that probably is not what you had in mind. But in myself, in my situation, I went to University of Northern Colorado in Greeley. And I started as a art and graphic design major. And like a lot of people would tell me that you're not going to find a job. There's no way you can make money with that. I guess the pressure of making my parents proud and they worked so hard for me to go to college too. So you don't want to disappoint them, you know, you want to make them feel proud. Mm -hmm. So I ended up with a criminal justice degree and I worked that degree for three years. I worked like for a probation officer and then I had like a a hire in a different job as a supervision program for immigration, which was maybe one of the main points why I decided to leave that job and go back to something that was healing for me, like uh, something that I love. Things that I had to see, things that I didn't want to see, but being in that position, I mean, it was, I guess it was like the best position for me to kind of help in a way than not working there. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. So I think that had to do a lot with, do I really want to live my life doing something that doesn't feel right inside me? Or, I mean, I only have one life, so I want to live and die doing what I love, even if I don't ever make a living out of it, you know? I think it was just the right answer was to go back to what I love, to doing art. I mean, I was always doing art, and I, I would always admire, like, the people, like, doing murals. Or, like, man, they make a living out of something that they love, and it just seemed impossible or something that I could do it. I didn't have, like, a, someone that taught me how to begin into the art world. Mm. So I was already painting small campuses, but for me, I wanted to show my work to a broader audience. So the streets just was the perfect campus for it. At the beginning, it was very scary to go from a small campus to a big wall. And like Jessica said, like I had to learn everything on my own too. And I was using spray paint when I was on my attempts to be like a graffiti writer, but I had no idea I bought like cheap spray paints too from Walmart and like you can tell the difference now that you know more about spray paints and how to change the caps. So that was like my start also just being afraid of going to a business and asking for permission about can I paint on your wall? I mean, I don't have any examples of previous murals, but like I had paintings and so my first mural I was gonna go it took me a couple of days to have the guts to go to the owner of the wall and ask for permission. So a lot of times I would go and just drive back to my house, like, ah, he's going to say no. Or So one day, I mean, I just <laughs> thought to myself, nothing's going to happen. I mean, he's going to say no or yes. So I went, and he was happy with some of my paintings. <laughs> he's like, yeah, I mean, as long as you don't put, like, a bad message on the wall. I remember that I was doing it after my job, after after work. So that first mirror took me, like, three weeks because <laughs> I was doing, like, two hours after work, four hours after work, and I had to borrow a ladder because I have a ladder, and I was using only brush because I was afraid of using the spray paint because I, I had no idea how to use it. Mm. And after that, I networked a lot with some people in Westwood, Denver, and they helped me a lot in getting commissions or just, like, providing my info to different people. By then, I kind of got into a role of doing murals on on Westwood. Now we have like a steady home, but we used to just move around a lot because rent was higher or lower in different places. But it was always on the Westwood. So I'm happy that my career as a muralist started there where I'm from and most of my murals are there. And I guess having a criminal justice degree, it gave me the opportunity to learn a lot about things that were just like I got to see things that I just, like, first thing, like, I wasn't okay with what was happening. So I think a lot of things that influence how I try to give a message with murals now. So that first mural, how did that, like, change your trajectory? Do you feel like after that mural you felt more confident? What really made you decide to keep going? I loved the process, and, I mean, even though it was so new to me and, like, I struggled a lot because it was something new, but... After you finish your first mural, you either love it or hate it, and you either want to continue doing murals or do you completely want to stop. I feel like people were reacting in a positive way, and that kind of gave me hopes that maybe there's something good coming out of this. And 
I gave a positive message on my mural. It was the, the kid watering some colorful mountains, and it just gives a message about caring about our planet and spreading love. When I finished, I wasn't too convinced about it, but I was getting a lot of positive messages from people, and that just made me continue, and that's when a lot more people started me, like, commissioned me, and it was weird that that was my first mural that, I mean, I did it with my money and everything. Mm. And after that, like, the second, that was like a commission mural. So I was very surprised that I only had to do one mural, like, with my money out of my pocket. I mean, Jules, hearing your story, I feel like I relate so much to what you're saying, just the fear of it all. Like I said before, there was no examples of somebody that looked and talked like me that was out there doing what I wanted to do. And Jessica, as a woman in a male-dominated art tradition, we probably say that about most art traditions. (laughs) How do you think your journey has been different? I think that just a lot of people think that you can't do it. I think they underestimate me all the time. I was doing a a mural in Vienna, Austria, and I had a crew of one guy helping me and one girl helping me. And, you know, when anyone would approach for an interview or just to take a picture or just ask a question, who do you think they would approach? They would not approach me. They would approach the guy, you know. So he eventually, yeah, he eventually put the word crew on his shirt just to make it apparent, like, I'm not the artist, you know. He would always, like, have to point them back to me. But I think specifically, I remembered a moment where I was doing a mural in Salt Lake City, Utah. And, you know, murals sometimes are planned for a very long time, months and months, if not years in advance sometimes. I was brought in by the University of Utah to do this mural for a neighborhood called Rose Park. When it comes to like public murals and stuff, oftentimes every square inch of that mural is approved on, you know, and voted on. And there's like community input. And I was working with a class and like all these things. Right. And so it's me and my assistant. We're up there painting. It's like day four of the mural. And this guy drives up in his truck and he has... 20 spray cans with them. He has these giant stencils with him. And we were up on the lift. So I was like, "Uh oh, (laughs) I just knew like something was off. Mm. So we're like, let's lower the lift. Let's see what he has to say. And he was like, hey, I've lived in this community for a long time. I've been sketching this wall. I've seen you up here. I was thinking of ways that I could infuse my designs all through your designs kind of thing. I wonder, too, if there's something about the physicality of making murals, you know, being up on a lift people feel maybe that women are less up to the task because when you look at the history of muralism, it was Diego Rivera, Siqueiros. It was mostly men artists and women were the ones painting the canvases. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if they ever thought, oh, maybe I should paint a mural. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) And what's so funny is that to this day, that guy probably doesn't know or understand what he did wrong. But Mm -hmm. I just feel like, yo, if you're really about it and you see like these two Latina women up there doing their thing, you would just be proud of us and that's it. How about you, Jules? Has there been a mural that you've created in the past or recently that you felt like was particularly impactful? So it's a mural I created in Boulder. It's an artivism mural festival. Also, they kind of give you the freedom to create whatever you want since it's like an artivism Mm -hmm. mural festival. I mean, it can be political or about climate change, like tacking social justice issues and... So I think it was very impactful that I created this mural in Boulder, which is a predominantly white city. But the whole mural is like this kid like laying on the ground and like resting his head on some books. 
and the book's titles read like social justice issues, so like racial mm. injustice, LGBTQ rights, and the climate change. And he's holding a book, reading a book about families have no borders, you know, to represent all the deportations mm-hmm. going on. I think the size of the mural was very impactful. That a lot of people were residents, uh, locals from Boulder. In my head, I was expecting people to come and. I know, with bad comments, negative comments, but mm-hmm. I think for me, surprisingly, the a lot of the locals from Boulder were coming to me with such a positive message and thanking me that they needed an image like that in Boulder and how maybe it's more impactful to have it in Boulder than like in a predominantly Hispanic neighborhood. Like mm-hmm. it makes mm-hmm. like a bigger impact there. Some people would pass by and just kind of give me like a dirty look, whatever, but thought it was funny that some people called the cops on me like at the middle of the mural <laughs> yeah. you know I mean I, I was already oh, no. there for three days you know and I had oh, my, my the windows all taped you know to cover everything to not paint like the the windows and everything I thought it was weird that people called the cops and the what did they how did you find out about that did they show up well yeah he showed up and they're like yeah hey, I'm just here because someone's calling that you're painting graffiti on the wall I like <laughs> <laughs> and they're like, and then he's like, well, I mean, I, I guess it's legal, right? Because you wouldn't have taken the time to cover all the windows. They're like, yeah. <laughs> and they're like, and like, there's like all the information about the mural festival there. I asked the, the officer, so you had no idea about this mural festival? It's been going on like for the past three days. And he's like, no, I had no idea. But someone just calling saying that you were tagging this building. And like, <laughs> I've been here for three days, you know, working on this. Uh, wow. But I thought it was, wow. I mean, I had positive things and like negatives too, but I think that's the importance of this mirror that it got people talking about it too. Like a lot mm-hmm. of people were loving the message because it's pretty straightforward, you know, it just gives you the titles on the books. It just tells you all the like racial injustice and about climate change and all. It's pretty straightforward. So, uh, it's also a kid, right? Too like yeah, it's like, a it's a representation of like a Mexican kid. Can you explain what the mask is? So he's wearing a luchador mask, wrestler mask, but it's a Tlaloc mask. So which Tlaloc is the Aztec rain god, and mm-hmm. I like to always put that into my mirrors to represent part of my culture, you know. So I just didn't want to put like a regular kid. I guess I wanted people to know that. It's a, Mexican kid and that we learn about things, you know, we know about racial injustice and all that. We learn about it. And I think the importance of having a kid is the message that I was trying to give with that mural. It's the importance of having our kids or learning about all these issues at, at an early age because in the school, I mean, they teach us about Christopher Columbus, he's a hero. He discovered America when mm-hmm. in reality that's not the, what happened, you know. He was mm-hmm. invader, you know. So we grow up knowing about whatever they want to teach us in school, and they don't teach this at school. So I think it's very important if that doesn't happen in school to up to the parents, you know, to teach our kids about why this is wrong and why they tell you this is right in school, but it's, in reality it's, it's something different, you know. 
Well, in history, like, is being written for better or for worse right now with what's happening with families still being separated and what's going on at the border even now. I think also having these confrontations in public spaces where, like, if you're walking with your child, you have to explain, like, what you think this mural is about. Because I think kids are naturally curious and parents have to explain really complicated issues to children. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a complicated topic to talk about with kids, you know, because you don't want to expose them, I guess, about all the bad things that are going on in the world. And you don't want them to grow up scared or... But I think it's important for them to know reality, you know? And I think there's ways to teach our kids and to learn about the truth, you know? And don't learn the the wrong things, you know? Because we're going to keep growing up like that and then the world is just going to stay like the way it is. You know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm going to pause here to thank you for listening to Vida y Arte. It is vital in these uncertain times to support art institutions across the country. Consider becoming a member of the Denver Art Museum today. Members enjoy free general admission, discounts on ticketed exhibitions like Frida Kahlo, Diego Rivera, and Mexican Modernism, plus much more. Visit denverartmuseum.org to learn more. Okay, so it was uh, 20, 2016. Trump had just gotten elected. I began shifting the narrative in my work to addressing whiteness and white supremacy. And I think now in 2020, it's like you hear it all the time. You even hear it in the news. Whereas even as little as like four years ago, like people were not saying this stuff at work. They were not talking about addressing it, you know, none of that stuff. So I got invited to like a mural festival put on by two indigenous women in Montreal, Canada. And This festival is really unique because the woman basically gets the walls in advance and she's like, paint anything you want, you know, which in the mural world, there's always somebody saying, you can say that, but can you kind of water it down or, you know, oh, like just you just kind of want to make it bright and cheery for everybody. So like this was a very rare opportunity for me to say what I wanted. So basically, I painted an artist friend of mine, Lex Valdez, and she is holding up a sticker over her right eye, and it says, white supremacy is killing me. Okay, so this is 30 foot by 36 tall or something. So I painted the whole thing. I pulled the letters off last. I finished the mural, and I left Canada. And there's a Facebook group for this neighborhood. It's called St. Henry. It's a predominantly black neighborhood in Montreal. And somebody posted the mural. Oh, interesting. People started talking about the mural. Like, what does this mean? Like, what is the artist trying to say? Because the night before, a bunch of white supremacists got together and took a paintball gun and, like, basically blasted the mural in, like, red paint. I mean, it literally looks like blood dripping down the woman. I mean, it was just, like, pretty grotesque. Uh, And then at the bottom, they put the words anti-white in graffiti. So in the Facebook group, people are like, what does this mean? You know, somebody else is like, it's okay, it's graffiti, like, this is what happens. And then someone else is like, no, this is so racist, we can't let this happen in our community, you know. So you can see the community starts a kind of dialogue about, like, the implications of these words, you know, and how it does or does not affect them. And so what I love about this instance is that the community raised enough money to fly me back and to repair the mural. Oh, wow. Yeah, so that was, like, really amazing. And it's at the entrance of the neighborhood. It's still there to this day. The whole bottom is graffitied, as happens with murals, but the message is still intact. So I think that it says a lot that it's still there and, like, it's still, like, valued and that the community feels like it's theirs. 
It's interesting you mentioned a little bit about the fact that you rarely get an opportunity to say exactly what you want to say. Do you feel like that's pretty common practice when making murals, that there's like this kind of a little bit of sense of censorship? Absolutely. I feel like 90% of the work that I try to put out has some attempt to be censored. I mean, it's in the very words, it's public, you know, it's for the people. I mean, it's supposed to be for the people, you know, for the community. In my experience, the more money that is involved, the more people want to say in what exactly goes on the wall, you know. So I've been in situations where I'm making the most money I've ever made in my life on one job, but they're like, this is exactly who you're going to paint. This is exactly what it's going to say. Like, I feel like I'm fighting all the time, you know, like, which is okay. And I have, like, lost jobs because of it, but I just know that, like, um, history will absolve me. You know what I mean? I know it's the right thing. I know it's, like, what's just. Yeah, so I'm, I'm like, pretty firm on what I believe and what's right. Absolutely. And now that we're talking about, like, communities and making murals, I'm wondering— so I'm from Miami. Um, my, my parents are Cuban immigrants. In Miami, there are certain neighborhoods that are being gentrified. I mean, this is happening all over the United States, but— Specific neighborhoods like Wynwood or Little Haiti in Miami have used murals and mural artists as a way to kind of beautify a neighborhood or make it very hip and cool and give them studio spaces. And then as soon as the property value goes up, they push out the artists. I want to get your thoughts. It's a very complicated issue, but I think this is also happening in Denver as well. Do you have any thoughts about how murals are being commissioned or how artists can turn this to their advantage for these communities that are being pushed out? Well, I mean, I think we're... We're right here in, in Rhino, and the <laughs> so yeah, I have my things that I don't support about the Rhino district because the way they've been shifting everything, like the mural festival. I'm, but I mean, I know it started as a way of supporting local artists, you know, and it has grown so much too. The I feel like any attracts a lot of people to here and see the murals but i think the problem is when developers or you know people with a lot of money wants to see like a hot spot and they're like oh we can totally use this spot to gent- yeah, yeah gentrify yeah i think they see it now more as a not supporting artists but just like a way of bringing money to to the to the place you know and the more it happens the more they're gonna keep raising the prices on rent and just kicking people out. And Jessica, do you see this happening in California where you're at? Oh my goodness. Everywhere I go, absolutely. I think there's two problems. I think, Jules, you're absolutely right. It's the people at the top, right? It's the people with the money that are making major decisions on, like, public land. And here in, like, the city of Oakland and in San Francisco, they made these, like, really great laws where if a developer comes in, then they have to spend 1% and up to 3% of their budget on art. But what ends up happening is that the people at the top don't know about art and they're making all these decisions. So they're just like, bring in whoever and, you know, you get your triangles and flowers murals. You get your geometric murals that just end up becoming something that the community that lives there no longer recognizes. It does gentrify. And I think that the people at the top need to have a better guided community process. They need to bring in, like, folks that are from community organizations to, like, partner with them to make sure that they're making the right decisions, you know. 
So that's one thing. And then on the other hand, I do feel like artists have a choice in participating in this. I do think that, Jules, I identify a lot with you. Like, I feel like we have a understanding that, like, our work, it's not just for us. You know, it belongs to the community. It belongs to the people. And, like, we have a responsibility to have a message that will have a positive impact on the people around it. But I need to research, like... What is the socio-demographics of the people that live there? Is it mostly a white town? Is it mostly a brown town? Are there undocumented people? Are there black people? Are there a lot of gay people there? Is it safe? Are they going to call the cops on me? All these things, you know, um, Mm -hmm. that I feel like have to be taken into account when creating public artwork for them, you know, because ultimately— these artists for these festivals fly in, they do their thing, and then they fly out. And then the communities are, like, left with, uh, what is this? Or, like, oh, this really does add to what we're we're working on. Or this does add to, like, the work we've been doing, you know? Well, there is also something very, you know, because we keep coming back to the fact that this type of art is so public. And what I'm understanding from both of you, too, is that it's also a very vulnerable process. Because you're working on it on the street where mm-hmm. people can see and interact and ask you questions Do you think that that makes it inherently political or do you think that makes people more open to going up and asking you questions about your artistic process? Because that wouldn't happen if you were in a studio by yourself. So being actually in the community, it totally changes the process, I imagine. Yeah, and I feel like Jessica says knowing about the community that lives there, it's probably like the most important thing when it comes to creating a public mural and because you paint the mural, you know, but once you've finished painting the mural, the wall, it kind of doesn't belong to you. It belongs to the community there. And you're not going to be the one driving by or walking by and seeing the mural all the time. It's going to be the community there, too. I mean, if something's not okay in the world, it's, there's issues going on. Mm-hmm. I have the space, and I'm going to give a message, you know. And, mm-hmm. yeah, it can create a positive and negative impact on the community if you don't do your research. But, I mean, that's going to... It's going to happen. Yeah, I agree. You could do all the research you want, but if something's happening on a national and global scale, like, okay, kids are in cages and people are out of jobs. And like, I feel like as a gay person, I feel like seconds away from being interned, you know, all these things that just, it feels like the handmaiden's tale right now. It feels like Mm -hmm. things are very, very scary. And so I feel like if you have the public space, you know, to address these things, sometimes like that's kind of the most profound thing you can do is address that and like in the public yeah, that's interesting, too, because when I think about the Diego Rivera's mural, Control Over the Universe, mm-hmm. how he created this mural in, like, the most capitalistic building probably in New York City at the time. And he was having this message about these worlds of capitalism versus communism and not necessarily saying one was better than the other, but kind of giving the community an opportunity to make their choice about it. He took the chance. I mean, he took advantage of that chance just there. And the more mm-hmm. capitalist building that was... You know, the Rockefeller building. So that it was like the best thing that he could have done. I mean, he put the a portrait of Lenin on the mural and that's where John D. Rockefeller just kinda exploded on that. He was like, We didn't agree on this. You know, it was just going against what he stands for, you know, his beliefs, you know. Yeah, absolutely. They just wanted him to change it. They didn't want to destroy it. And I think it's interesting. It kind of goes back to what you were saying earlier, Jessica, about having like your moral principles in place and having like limits to what you're willing to accept and not accept. And in this case, the Oliveira was like, well, if you don't like it, you can just destroy it. The last question I wanted to ask you guys is what words of advice might you give to a listener who's interested in creating murals? My advice is just to believe in yourself, like, what keeps me going all the time is just knowing that I want to live my life doing something that I love. And I want to somehow be remembered as 
someone that didn't give up on my dream, you know. I had other jobs, but I knew that I wasn't happy inside. So, I mean, I'm loving the process. I'm still, I'm still working on it, you know. I'm not a full-time artist. I'm a working artist right now. It's a process and it's not easy, but it's the beauty of it. I mean, you're learning every day and I'm growing every day and learning every day and I'm loving it. It's the best process and like the best decision that I made, you know, to leave my job that I had and to actually do something that I love. It's, I think it's very possible for everyone to do it. Like, cause I used to not believe in myself. And when that happens, no one believes in yourself. So you have to start believing in yourself and eventually things are gonna work out. Yeah, work out, so. How about you, Jessica? Yeah, I think very similarly, but just kind of become who you are. I think every year I'm just like peeling back more and more and more layers and getting to the more raw version of just myself. And I think growing up, we have people telling us we shouldn't be a certain way. We have family values telling us we shouldn't be a certain way, cultural values, community values. And I think growing up is just about being less and less what other people want you to be. Something I always come back to is like, what is something that only you can say? You know, like mm-hmm. Jules having all the identities that he has and me having all the identities that I have. Like we have one story to tell, you know, that's like uniquely ours. So what is that story? Well, this has been great. I want to thank you, Jules and Jessica, for taking the time to speak with me today. I really look forward to seeing your upcoming projects and wish you the best of luck in all of your future endeavors. Thank you, Maria. Thank you for the invitation. Thank you so much. Thank yeah, you for having us. Thank you. And thank you, Jules. Yeah. I'm excited to connect with you in the future. I'll come to Denver. We'll throw something up. Click on the link in the podcast description to learn more about Jessica Sabogal and Jules Mendoza's artwork. Or you can also download a Spanish transcript of this show.